Welcome into another edition of the Hangtime Podcast. Seku Smith here in Atlanta. My main man, John Schumann, is in New Jersey. John Harps is behind the glass, as always. Later in the show, we're going to be joined by Eric Horn of the Oklahoman to talk about the Oklahoma City Thunder and what they've got going on right now. Really interesting stretch of the schedule of this new year for them right now. Huge games. Four straight national TV games that are really going to help put their season into focus for us. But first, as always, something about Wednesday night in the NBA. Huge games in Boston, Houston, and Oakland. The Celtics coming up with a huge win. Kyrie Irving with a knockout performance and some interesting comments after the game about conversations he's had with LeBron James and other people uh, in the wake of all the drama going on with the Celtics. James Harden rips off another 50-point game, but this time in a loss for the Rockets. Uh, And the Golden State Warriors, Steph Curry is on some kind of vicious run right now. John Schumann, watching Steph, watching these Warriors, knowing that Boogie Cousins is on his way to that lineup, are you worried at all that Boogie disrupts the rhythm that Steph has right now? That's my first thought. You know, uh, they've won eight of nine. Their offense has been absolutely ridiculous over that nine-game stretch. They've scored 128 points per 100 possessions, which is about nine points per 100 possessions better than any other team over that stretch. Mm -hmm. I watched the Denver game on Tuesday, and the one thing I noticed was that – so Denver was – you know, guarding screens where the guy getting screened, you know, goes over the screen and then tries to get back in the play. And it's basically the most common defensive scheme in around the league mm-hmm. where the guy trails the play, the screener's defender, you know, hedges for a little bit and tries to allow the guy getting screened to get back in the action. And the Warriors just wouldn't let that happen. So they would get this, they would gain a little bit of an edge with the screen and then the ball just moved too quickly for Denver ever to get back into the play like and so they they just gained that advantage and then they just never gave it up like you'll see lots of teams you know where the dribbler just backs up and then the defender gets back into play and it's back to a five-on-five situation or he makes a pass and the next guy hesitates for half a second and then the defense recovers but the that just didn't happen with with the Warriors you know the ball just moved too quickly for Denver ever to get back in it I mean and they shot ridiculously but one of the reasons they shot so well is because the ball and the players moved just so quickly for Denver to recover it was a it was a clinic in and sort of how to take advantage of a scheme like that and it wasn't just on the ball screens. It was off the ball screens, too. There was one possession where I think it was Durant coming off a little cross screen from Green, and he catches a pass, and Plumley hedges over, you know, to keep him from shooting a catch-and-shoot three from the top of the key. And he catches it and drops it off to Green in one motion, and then Draymond's got a clear lane to the basket. The weak side help comes, and he just tosses up a lob to Looney. And it was just a clinic. You know, any advantage they had, there was one where Jokic scored in the post, Green inbounded the ball to Curry. He quickly passed it ahead to Durant, who was just beat, I think it was Torrey Craig in a sprint down the floor. Now Murray has to come over, and Durant, in one motion, tosses a cross-court pass to Clay Thompson in the opposite corner for an open three off of a make. And it was just, they, they were just moving too quickly for, for Denver to, to keep up. So it wasn't just about shooting, it was just about... Um, Flow. Offensive, oh, yeah. yeah. Offensive execution and just, you know, really um, focusing on ball movement and player movement and just not letting up on that end of the floor. Um, their defense still, the numbers aren't there yet. 
uh, defensively. But I mean, if the offense is going to be this good, this is this is them, you know, really finding their their rhythm. And so, yeah, now you wonder. Okay, Cousins comes in. Is he going to stop the ball movement? Is he going to be able to fit in with that kind of play? And and obviously, there's questions on the on the other end of the floor as well. I'm wondering if, is he going to be comfortable with the ball movement part? Because I don't care how much you try and adjust to play like that. It's it's a different way to operate if you haven't played in a system like that. I guess the Pelicans somewhat understood that in his time with them. But the Warriors, the way they just crushed the Pelicans, you know, after Steph got loose, first player in NBA history to have eight or more threes in three straight games, he went for seven in the third quarter, you know, against the Pelicans. And if there's a switch to be flipped, I would say that the Warriors have have come as close to that point over these past few games as they have all season, they finally look to me and I'm not looking at their defensive numbers and whether or not they, they've gotten back to the level we're used to them on that end, because I don't know in this freedom of movement in NBA, if that's possible, I, I'll, I'll make up my mind in the next couple of minutes. If I want to go off on my rant about nobody playing defense this season or not, I, I might save that for another day, but they look like they're as close to nuclear warriors offensively as they, as they've been, all season. Clay's shooting it better now, of course. Anytime Kevin Durant gets 30 and 15 and it's, it's an afterthought, that tells you how ridiculous Steph has been. I'm just, I just I don't want Cousins to be a victim of his own game, you know, the history of his own game by coming in and, and disrupting that, looking for opportunities to get loose or to get going when you don't have to. Like you said, there's going to be so many instances where the Warriors are making the right pass and the right play, then he won't need to try and manufacture opportunities for himself. Yeah, I mean, I think that ultimately his best role might be with the second unit and getting some sort of post-touches that way. We know they're going to start him, but he could just start and play the first four minutes and then come off the floor and then maybe play the bulk of his minutes with the second unit um, mm-hmm. where that can – that unit's offense could be more tailored towards towards what he does. But we'll see. I mean, it's been so long since we've seen him play. True. Um, and obviously, it's a completely different team that he's playing for now, so we don't know what, what we're going to see from him. You know, with, with the Pelicans uh, last year, they really unleashed his sort of passing ability, his playmaking ability, something that we hadn't seen before. But like I said, that was that was with a lot of dribbling. You know, it wasn't – it wasn't, you know, quick action playmaking. It was, you know, him dribbling quite a bit and driving himself. But turnovers were an issue with him, even with sure. all that. I had some stat last year, like he led the league in turnover ratio on drives, on pick and rolls, on <laughs> on post-ups. Like it was, you know, basically turnover city um, with him. But with that, you got, you know, obviously some good scoring and, and playmaking. You know, he, they would run pin, pick and rolls with him and Anthony Davis, which was yeah. you know, fascinating to, to watch. But uh, so I'm very, very curious as to see what's going to happen with him uh, in the Warriors offense. 10.30 Eastern on Friday night, we'll get a chance to see the return and the debut of DeMarcus Cousins in a Warriors uniform against the Los Angeles Clippers. James Harden shoot 58 points, back-to-back 55-plus point games, and they lose. <laughs> the Rockets lose 145-142 in a wild overtime game at Toyota Center. My, my big takeaway from this, and everybody's looking at the attempted threes, you know, the Rockets Chuck 73s. You know, Harden scores like a maniac, of course. He ran out of gas at the end of the game. 
And they double teamed him. He, he, you know, and he made the right play out of a double team. Didn't work out. So it's not like I'm, you know, you hold them accountable for anything in the loss. It happens. To me, the bigger concern for the Rockets is how much longer are you going to be able to ride James Harden like this, and how much longer will he have the energy and the stamina to play at this level, and, and still have something in reserve for the rest of the season and the playoffs in particular. He's got, he's got that cursed playoff history, you know, where he can't get to this level. In the postseason, I'd be worried about it if I'm Mike D'Antoni about leaning too hard on James Harden right now. Yeah, I mean, the Clint Capella loss uh, really hurts. I mean, we didn't talk about that on Monday because I think the news came across that he was out, like maybe yeah. right after we, we recorded. You know, because no, they don't have anybody else that can, that can elevate and grab and, and, and catch alley-oops like Clint Capella. It seems like a simple thing, but it's really important to what the Rockets do because if Capella's defender at all just hedges over towards Harden, um, he just tosses it up and Capella can go get it and finish. And that's an important part. Like if they're playing pick and roll and the opposing defense isn't switching and Harden gets downhill, you know, Capella's man has to make a decision. And once he commits, that lob goes up and Capella finishes. If he doesn't commit, Harden, you know, scores himself. And without the threat of Capella, that's an easier decision for that guy, right? Like he doesn't have to worry about uh, Nene elevating as much or <laughs> what's his name? Hartenstein elevating right. much or PJ Tucker when he's playing. Or PJ Tucker yeah. when he's playing the five and Jared Allen right. is so, yeah, I think, rebounds off I think top the, the, the three-point attempts thing is going to keep – it's going to stay there because they're just going to have to play five out for the most part and have Harden attack an empty lane rather than – attack with a rolling capella so i think it's a different uh, a different look and i it does put more of a burden on harden if you look at his numbers with capella off the floor his field goals attempts are up and his assists are down and so he's gonna have the ball obviously getting chris paul back will help eventually it's not a good sign that eric gordon couldn't finish the game last night and his, his first game back that game though houston was up 11 with less than four minutes to go in regulation and then up again seven in overtime it reminded me of a couple of games that the Nets lost. <laughs> they were on the other side of that; those kind of collapses earlier in the yeah, season. Yeah, Spencer did when he went off. Yeah, he, he's he's had a couple of those. There was I think there was a game against uh, Detroit earlier in the season where he hit yes. like three threes in the last five minutes of regulation or something like that to to bring them back. And he hit three in the last I think twenty sec twenty six seconds of regulation. He hit three threes to to force overtime, and then obviously hit the uh, the go ahead uh, and one in, o, in OT. But, I mean, that's just a wild finish. Like, I don't know if you can draw too many conclusions from Houston losing that game other than, you know, their de- right. their defense isn't good enough to, to win games when Harden's scoring 58 points. You know, their exactly. defense is obviously the bigger issue than what's going on offensively with that team. Yeah. The last thing uh, I wanted to get to before we talk thunder with Eric Horn of the Oklahoma is Kyrie Irving. Um He's and been we talked about him. <laughs> we talked. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's almost like he listened to my every word <laughs> on our previous podcast and then answered it point by point, literally with 27 and a career I 18 assists and a win over Toronto. And then afterwards, he kind of addressed exactly what I was talking about the other day, Shu. He even called LeBron and apologized for being the young, impetuous you know, star that he was when LeBron showed back up in Cleveland. I, I, I applaud Kyrie for showing this kind of maturity. I, I don't know that a public mea culpa was the right thing to do because it might look like more grandstanding from him, you know, from some of his teammates. But um, 
He said he had to call Bron and tell him he apologized for being that young player that wanted everything at his fingertips. Well, you really? You know, that's great. That's exactly what you should have done before you started blasting your young guys, you know, to the press, before you went off on Brad Stevens and Gordon Hayward, you know, at the end of a game when you didn't get the ball. I mean, it's it's tough watching a guy learn these lessons on this stage. But it's almost, and I mean this, it's almost like watching a child star grow up and stumble before our very eyes with his huge moments and highest highs, lowest low, you know. And this is all relative. It's basketball. It's, it's, you know, Kyrie, for all we know, is a no-frills, off-the-court dude, never had an issue. So it's not like I'm concerned about his character, but just his his ability to morph into the leader that he wants to be, having already been a champion, has been interesting. I think hopefully this little stretch has been cathartic for him and allows him to move on in a in a certain fashion. So the Celtics put behind him all this drama and just get back to playing at the high level we expected them to play at. Yeah, I mean, that was a big win for them. I'll, I'll, uh, I, don't, I don't care too much about the him bearing his soul after the game, I guess. But uh, it was an important win for them, obviously, beating Toronto um, at home, even within the game. I mean, he obviously hit, you know, the two or three biggest shots of the game. But even within the game, you could just sort of see the the peaks and valleys of the Celtics. You know, you can see how good in, in the second quarter, you could just see how good they could be in the third quarter and early fourth. You saw, you know, why they can struggle a little bit. Gordon Hayward looked ridiculously smooth in the first half and then rather clunky in the second half. And I think that's just what you're getting with him now is just, you know, some you'll see visions of of the player that he was and the player he can he can he can get back to being but then you still see that there's a little bit of growing pains with him getting back from his injury so you know I I think we just got to keep watch keep an eye like I don't think last night solved anything well it it may have it was a step forward I don't think it's it's uh it's reason to believe that the Celtics are the best team in the east again I think Toronto also has its issues you think yeah, I mean, sure. <laughs> uh, I mean, how so? What do you What do you think? Well, I mean, they they sort of folded late game last night. You know, mm-hmm. they um, late game. I think they're just a little bit too reliant on put the ball in Kawhi Leonard's hands and let him do right. his thing. And uh, we talked the other day about him passing the ball more often. I think I, I talked about it in the last mm-hmm. one. Um, I mentioned in power rankings that he had a five game stretch where it was the most assists he's ever had over five games in his career. But still, I think there's a disconnect between his offense and the rest of the team's offense a little bit. And when they put the ball in his hands, they're relying on him, you know, basically to shoot a pull up jumper. You know, you want to see a little bit more playmaking. You want to see some more options offensively, I think, down the stretch for them. I'm not as concerned with the Raptors. I think they've been they've shown us you know, at, at this point that they're capable of handling their business in certain ways. I am curious, though. I, I wonder how Kyrie's message and messages are being received by his younger teammates. It's been clear to me that there's been some bristling at at the way he's operated. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to watch these Celtics over the next few weeks just to see how they respond to all this. And, and if Kyrie can find a, the right kind of rhythm, you know, in his leadership to, to stay on a path that gives them an opportunity to, to wash away whatever struggles they've had and move move on to that next level through the course of this season. 
Speaking of teams that we are curious about, and I got a chance to see them in town this past week, the Oklahoma City Thunder. We, I mentioned that we were going to talk to Eric Horn of Oklahoman, and we'll do that now, about a Thunder team that, shoe, in my opinion, I wasn't confident that they would be able to become the team that, that I think they have in the Western Conference so quickly. And I, I credit a lot of it to just how good Paul George has been. I think he's been a clear difference maker for them. But also the, the growth and development of a lot of their young guys has finally come along. I think Terrence Ferguson has been really good. And, they, and they've done a lot of this without one of their main defensive pieces in Andre Robertson uh, being in the lineup. But credit to the Thunder for, you know, for coming around and really rounding out things the way they have. Eric, thank you for joining us first and foremost. I know you're busy. Road schedule for beat writer is never kind. But before that loss to the Hawks on Tuesday, the Thunder had really made an impression on people. What was the point in this season, do you think, that the, the light kind of went off for them as a group and, and they really came into their own? Thanks for having me. After they inserted Jeremy Grant into the starting lineup, I think that's mm-hmm. really when things started to flow for them. Because remember, they started 0-4. And we right. see them a, a very long way removed from that because we've seen their defense solidify. Paul George has gotten past kind of the inconsistencies he showed in the first month. And a lot of that has to do with Jeremy Grant. Remember last year, Carmelo Anthony was sort of the weak link in that mm-hmm. defense. You know, once they put him in in game five against uh, Utah, they went on that crazy – or they put Jeremy Grant in. They went on that crazy run. And that's when you had Carmelo on the sideline kind of going back and forth, trying to get back on the floor. And Mo Cheeks kind of like having to calm him down or whatever. Mm-hmm. But um, so Jeremy Grant's really solidified their starting lineup since he's gotten in there uh, at one point. I think before the turn of the year, they had the best record in the league uh, since they put him in the starting lineup. You know, Patrick Patterson was supposed to be that starter at power forward, but Jeremy Grant's too good to not play with that starting group. And he makes everybody else's job a little easier because of his length and his ability to, to switch and, and guard every position. So that was really the turning point for him um, to solidify their defense. And then once they got their defense solidified, you know, Paul George has really carried the offense uh, in the past month, month and a half, had a great mm-hmm. December, and uh, but but this team's gonna make their make their money on defense, man, because they just don't have enough shooting. But yeah, that, that was the turning point. Probably the game they lost to Boston, which made them zero and four, was actually the game where they started to turn it around. Right. The schedule coming up is very interesting. They host the Lakers tonight on, on TNT, uh, and then they're off to Philly for a Saturday matinee against the Sixers, and then in New York. You know, for the, the Martin Luther King Jr. Day matinee at Madison Square Garden, then back home for a Tuesday night game against the Blazers, and then the Pelicans next Thursday. I mean, this I, I know you can't get into season-defining stretches and all that kind of drama in an 82-game schedule, but this would seem like a very curious stretch of the season if only they're going to find out just where they stack up against some other teams that, that – fall in that mix, you know, in terms of groups that are trying to sort out, you know, their position in the Western Conference in particular. And Russ hasn't been great. He hasn't shot it great right now. Is this is this an opportunity for Russ to kind of reassert himself? I know he's having a triple-double, and he's almost made that commonplace now. But I feel like he's he needs kind of a nuclear stretch of, you know, Russ shooting it well and playing at a really high level just to kind of – 
solidify what I think we're seeing from this team. Yeah, yeah, this is going to be a big week. And I'm, I'm honestly, I was telling somebody this on the radio a couple of days ago. I'm just as interested in, in that game against the Knicks uh, as I am the other ones because you cannot afford to go to New York and lose. That's a team that's not even trying to win. They're, they're, <laughs> I mean, they're, they're developing. No, and, and look, and Fizz has come out and just said they're trying to develop guys. They're working toward yeah. the future. Uh, that's not a knock on the Knicks. They just have, they just know who they are right now, and they're not trying to win games. So the Thunder's got to go up there and 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 beat those guys, and they have a propensity to go out to the LA's, the Atlanta's, the 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 New Yorks, and kind of let their guard down. Uh, that game, that that crazy game they won against Brooklyn, they played they played poorly for three quarters, and then they and then Paul George just got crazy in the fourth quarter. Uh, they went up to LA and stayed out there for three days earlier this season, and the Clippers beat them by sixteen. So they've got to show that they can be consistent against the worst teams, the, the, the bottom dwellers to me, because with the strength of their schedule in this back half of the season, they cannot afford to have slip ups against Atlanta, um, against Washington at home without John Wall. Like, yeah. They lost some, they lost some really like eye opening games in the past like couple of weeks that, you know, it, it kind of goes against their strong start against bad teams. They started 13-0 and against sub-500 teams, and that was a problem for them last year. They played so poorly against bad teams. You thought they had it corrected in this first half of the season, and now they don't. And, yeah, like you said about Russ, like I think Jeff Van Gundy said this on a, on a broadcast a few weeks ago, and it stuck with me ever since. Mm. It was before, the, it was before the, the midway point of the season or so. He said, it's getting late early in terms of trends. <laughs> And right. and that makes so much sense to me when it comes to Russell. It's like we keep saying, okay, he's going to come around. He's a guy who gets better as the season goes on. Statistically throughout his career, he's shown that. But it's getting late early for him in terms of, you know, his free throw percentages, uh, his shooting percentages uh, throughout the season, you know, taking the right three-pointers, which I think he's done. He's taken the right three-pointers more so this season. But frankly, instead of taking some of them, just moving the ball and he's done it so he's done it better than he has in other seasons but he still needs to continue to stay on that track he's had a cluster of games in the past few weeks where he shot you know closer to where he's been in that you know 48 50 percent range and I think he's put together a better cluster of those than he did in early December but yeah you got to get more consistency with Russell Westbrook because he's gonna be a guy with Paul George that's gonna be taking a majority of your shots he's gonna be taking 20 shots a game and if he's gonna take that many shots He's got to make nine, ten of them, or he's got to get to the line at a high clip and make his free throws. And we just haven't seen a consistent stretch from that for Russell Westbrook yet. So it begs the question is when is he going to hit that that streak to where he can make up for some of the Thunder's defensive deficiencies we've seen in the last few weeks? Because when they had that defensive slippage, their margin of error is so slim to where you can't have Russell Westbrook be off the way he's been so far this season. Eric, I, I was going to sort of bring up that you mentioned the the loss to Washington. You mentioned the uh, loss in Atlanta the other day. They have lost four of their last five, and that basically been their worst defensive stretch of the season. What is wrong with the defense over that stretch, and and how much how concerned are they about that end of the floor? I think pick and roll is is a, is a big issue with them right now. Trey Young looked really good in the pick and roll the other day. I'll say that. <laughs> Boy, he he ate him alive, and um, and 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 it makes me excited about the Hawks and what Lloyd Pierce is doing. That he has those young guys playing as confidently as he does. 
I think that they're going to be they're going to be a, a problem in the East in the next few years. But even before that game, around mid-December, you actually started to see some shades of this. Uh, they went up to Utah. They won a one-point game in Utah, where Utah ran the same play on these guys three times in a row with Rudy Gobert rolling to the rim, and just nobody rotated over, untouched, unmolested dunks, and Utah just kept going back to it, and. You saw it against Phoenix. Uh, you saw it against Dallas. Some of the same things where teams would go through a stretch where they would just kill the Thunder and pick and roll, just pick them apart with that roller, either because the guy on the ball wasn't denying the ball quickly enough, the Thunder likes to play their center up high with Steven Adams up in pick and roll because, frankly, I don't think that they trust the guard to do a good enough job to deny the pass. They like to play that center up high, so that means your rotation has got to be on on the backside. And the biggest problem for the Thunder last year was defending the corner three. So naturally, that rotational, that guy that's rotating from the backside is going to be kind of in a no man's land. He's going to kind of be like, okay, my instructions are to stay home because I don't, I want to prevent the corner three. But at the same time, we've got this guy rolling free to the basket. So what do I do? So I think that there's a little bit, something's a little off right now with that rotation on the backside. And it starts at the top of the pick and roll. The guard's got to be able to deny that first pass. He's got to be able to deny the ball, make that, make that opposing guard, you know, go back through and and and, and recalculate and, and think for a second and and kind of you know dribble back above the three point line and restart the set, because if that guard can just go through the set, then that's a complete breakdown. That's what you saw against Atlanta. You saw Alex Lynn rolling uncontested. Um, you saw John Collins not having to take a single jump shot because he's just getting everything he wants at the rim. Because by the time he gets to the rim, he's going up against a you know a small guy like Terrence Ferguson, or he's going up against a guard. So the Thunder's got to re- they got to recalibrate there, and I think they will because Atlanta Atlanta was a, an anomaly to me in terms of the pick and roll defense for them. In those games I mentioned before, like Utah, Dallas, Phoenix, the Thunder had problems, but they corrected it within the game, and they ultimately won the game. Atlanta they just didn't correct it, and it led to just one of the most embarrassing defensive performances I've seen in a long time from this team. So I think they're capable of correcting it. Uh, I think they will. And I think that those guys understand what they need to do. And they understand that it takes a, a particular level of focus for them to play good pick and roll defense consistently. They, they just, they just got to do it, man. Um, and, and I think they can. They've got the guys that are capable of doing it. Jeremy Grant's, again, he's been great. Uh, Russell showed a little bit in that game where he, he slid over. Uh, in terms of backside help and, and, and did a good job in that third quarter. That was the, the only quarter that they really played defense. And uh, and Steven Adams and Paul George are just – they just have such great defensive instincts and positioning that they'll, they'll get it fixed. It's just they're in a they're in a stretch right now where um, it, it's been a big weakness for them. I, I want to go back also to Westbrook shooting. He's basically been the worst jump shooter in the league, high-volume jump shooter in the league this year. And I'm always fascinated by it. You'll see him also like – He'll he'll take he'll go like two for ten from three point range in a game, and then he won't take another ten threes over the next like three weeks. <laughs> it, and you can sort of see it like in his numbers. You just look at his game log, and he's like, oh, he shot poorly from three, and then now he just stopped shooting threes for the next you know however many weeks. Does he ever let you guys in on his thought process as far as his shot is concerned? I think it's it's for me it's fascinating, but I know that him that with him talking to him, he's not going to exactly uh, empty his head towards, you know, towards the media, uh, to the media in regard to 
um, his thought press process, why he's struggling with his shot in particular, whether he's concerned about it, um, whether he's been uh, hesitant to shoot at times. Like, I, I want to know, like, what has he said about his jump shot this season? Well, I, I think that Russell is really self-aware, uh, even if he doesn't, you know, make it so with us. Uh, and he never will. He'll never, he'll never let us into this process of, uh, of whether or not he should or shouldn't be taking threes. And the Thunder's always going to empower him on the record to take open shots uh, because they're going to say they need him to take open shots. They also need him to find the best shot on the floor. And, you know, a lot of times that's not him taking a three. Uh, I don't like, I don't like throwing, I don't like throwing media guys under the bus, but I heard a certain guy on, on a game <laughs> that they were, um, it might have been a road game. And I was listening to the, to the broadcast from home when my beat partner was on that game. And one of the, one of the guys on the broadcast saw Russell Westbrook hesitate on a corner three point attempt. Uh, and the closeout was the closeout was pretty solid from from the team they were playing against. But he Russell pumped, he brought it back down, and as he went through that process, the the color commentator said he needs to shoot that. He's too good not to shoot that. But like as soon as he said that, I was like, what are you talking about? Like just because a shot is open doesn't mean you should take it. And as you said, Russell Westbrook has been one of the worst jump shooters in the league. Like statistically throughout his career, he's like one. He, he might be the worst high-volume three-point shooter we've ever seen. So, again, the Thunder wants him taking better shots in terms of the, the places on the floor. Time and situation has always been an issue with Russell. But, like, on that particular play I was talking about, I think there was eight on the shot clock. Russell pumps, brings it down. The commentator says, he needs to take that. He's a, he's a good enough player. He needs to take that shot. No, but Russell moves the ball, gets it to Dennis Schroeder. Dennis Schroeder makes an extra pass to Jeremy Grant. Jeremy Grant attacks a closeout and does a great little Euro step and scores at the rim. It's not all about Russell Westbrook having to take a shot just because he's the best player. And I think that part of this season and part of the awakening for Russell and the Thunder is just because somebody's presenting something to you, the defense is sagging off of you 10 feet and inviting you to take a jump shot that you're not going to make, you know, six times out of 10 because you're just not a good jump shooter. Move the ball, trust somebody else on your team to make a play with it. And he trusted the guy in that instance. And I thought it was just, I thought it was a completely wrong observation by the color analyst. And I thought it was a great play by Russell. And we've seen him do that before. It's just a matter of doing it game in and game out um, and doing it more consistently. Um, I've talked about this on our podcast several times this year. I think we're going to have to see the Thunder go through some, some ugly losses throughout the stretch of the season and go through some games where you have Russell Westbrook go three of 10 or three of 18 or whatever, so that he can understand that he doesn't have to take that bad jump shot every time, just because somebody's inviting him to, he can trust Steven Adams to, you know, make a floater or trust Jeremy Grant to break somebody down off the dribble or trust Dennis Schroeder, uh, you know, to drive, draw two guys and then kick out to somebody. It doesn't always have to come down to Russell taking the jump shot or creating an assist. Like, that's part of the maturation of his game. So I think, like, the, the quicker he understands that, the more they can get more out of the, the totality of their offense. I like that. I, I do. And I, and I was thinking along those lines, Eric, I talked to Paul George the other day, and I don't know if he was trying to speak this into existence or if he was just being positive and hopeful about what he thinks could be in the offing with Andre Robertson. Is there a timetable for for his return? Because PG was talking like, man, if you think we're good on defense now, 
wait until we get Dre back in the lineup. He's like, and then we're really going to be something on defense. And I'm like, I wasn't even sure if it was in the cars that he's returning anytime soon yeah. or if at all. I, don't, I mean, what is the, what's the latest on Andre Robertson's potential return and, and sort of maybe a timetable for it? Well, when he had the setback in late November, they were starting to ramp up his conditioning. I think that the last, you know, six weeks or so is really the the part that's really hurt him is the conditioning because he's going to have to basically get that. He's going to have to start that all over. So I thought that he was pretty close to, to being in contact practice. Uh, if he would have continued on the same track, he would have been in contact practice in December and probably ready to play sometime by now. Billy Donovan said, you know, earlier this week, he's not close to, to playing in games. So while they haven't had a timetable, you got to think about the conti- the conditioning aspects of things. I, I wouldn't anticipate it being back before the break, uh, the All Star break. But you know, your your conversation with Paul is, is is right. Like if you get a guy like Andre Robertson back, you know, some of the pick and roll issues you saw that have, that have popped up in the past few weeks, Andre Robertson can single handedly change the way the Thunder schemes to play defense. He destroys pick and roll by himself. He's a guy who. He doesn't need – and Stephen Adams has said this several times. Like, Andre can do that on his own to where I don't have to play up and pick and roll. Stephen Adams can play in that gray area and just – he can either drop, play in the gray area to where he can deflect balls or any, like, slotted passes in that pocket to the guy who's rolling. Or Andre Robertson will just snuff it out by himself because he's so good at getting his body in position on the guard without fouling. He's, he's physical. He's long. He's got great side-to-side, you know, uh, short burst athleticism. And that just makes everybody's job easier on the backside. That makes Paul George's job easier on the on the weak side to where he can kind of play free safety. Russell Westbrook can roam and do the things that he likes to do, which is not play defense. <laughs> I mean, uh, <laughs> you know, not, not be super focused on defense. Russell likes to roam and play free safety on the backside and, and do stuff like that. And he can he can afford to do that more. Steven Adams can drop. Um, Andre Robertson makes everybody's life easier. And it's it's kind of the reason the Thunder is willing to pay that guy the money they're paying him because you don't have to have Russell Westbrook fighting over screens at the top of the three-point line. You don't have to have Terrence Ferguson and Paul George doing that. And, then, and, and credit to Ferguson, he's, he's actually become a, a really good defender this year. And, and, and Robertson has a big part to play in that because Robertson is a guy who works with him in film study. He, he's he's constantly talking to those young guys and giving them pointers and then showing them, you know, strategies about you know how to defend certain players and how to position their bodies. So yeah, Paul's right, man. Like Robertson's a game changer when he's healthy. And as good as the Thunder's defense has been, it just makes their margin for error even greater if they have a healthy Andre Robertson. Hmm. Last thing, Eric, before we get to uh, our Schumann stat, and this is kind of a curious thing for every team, or uh, you know, that's either buying or selling trade deadline is coming up February 7th. You think the thunder are, are in the market to make a move or to stand pat? They should be in the market. You know, it would help if a guy like Patrick Patterson was playing better. Like Alex Abrinas was playing better. If Andre Robertson was even healthy, because you've got a lot of question marks in terms of guys that you can offer to other people, because frankly, those guys either haven't played well or they haven't played well or they haven't played at all, but they should still be aggressive. I think. Sam Presti is a guy who's typically methodical in the way that he goes about trades. Sometimes he'll do some stuff on the margins to get them a little bit better in the short term. 
but then the stuff on the margins will parlay into something greater in the summer or in the off season. You know, getting a Taj Gibson and a Doug McDermott in Russell's MVP year, you know, that made them better in the short term at, at power forward. But it was the long play. It was a guy like Doug McDermott being packaged to go get a Carmelo Anthony. So the Thunder might operate more so on the margins, particularly because of just how much money they have on their books. And in the buyout market, I think that they'd definitely be a player in the buyout market as well because they have a mid-level exception to offer. They have a they have a veterans minimum. They have a roster spot as well to where they could absorb another salary. I mean, not another salary, but another body in a trade. And then they have a $10 million trade exception, but the Thunder has also let trade exceptions go by before too. So with that trade exception in hand, I think that they they should be aggressive in looking for for a guy particularly a wing guy that can that can help him with their perimeter shooting because you just don't know what Alex Sabrinas is going to be when he comes back from his personal reasons. I would say that they should be aggressive, but at the same time, I've seen them for the past three years or so kind of just improve on the margins and not do anything blockbuster-ish. So I'd mm-hmm. probably lean towards them being more on the margins than being a team that's going to go make a shock move you know, get somebody that's a big name. And part of that is, like, I know how they operate, and then part of it is they don't have a ton of assets to move, really. Like, they don't right. – like, somebody's going to ask them about Terrence Ferguson, and they're going to say no. Uh, like, somebody's going to ask them about – Yeah, no, because he's 20 years old and he plays the position. <laughs> that's the most valuable position in the league, like a, a two-way wing that you can develop. That's hard to come by. Like, a, a Hamadou Diallo is another guy people are going to ask about. And, you know, the, the deal would have to be pretty rich for me to part with a Hamadou Diallo. Um, he's 20 years old. He's super athletic. And he's got a lot of upside. So they have some interesting decisions to make. As always, it depends on what other teams are offering. And it depends on how teams value some of the guys they have. Because I don't think there's much value on Andre Robertson right now except to the Thunder. Because other teams don't know what you're going to get from a guy like that. Patrick Patterson, Alex Sabrinas. That, that's a lot of question marks. So I guess it remains to be seen. I, that's, that's a long way of me saying I don't have an answer. I just have theories. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. I, I don't have answers when John Schumann cranks up his Schumann stat, Eric. And, and yet I'm going to let him do it again. Shoot, what's our Schumann stat this week? All right, fellas, you ready for this? No, um, go ahead. <laughs> Paul George, over the course of his career, including playoffs, has taken 73 shots to tie or take the lead in the final minute of fourth quarter or overtime? This is a multi-part question. First of all, how many of those 73 shots do you think he's made? Can I guess first? Yes, sure. please. I'm going to say one because <laughs> I, no. I, I – am I wrong? No. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> okay, well, it's not It's not. But it's only, it's, only, it's only nine, and that's okay. 12%. Yeah. Oh, wow. Man. And that is the worst mark among – 110 players that have taken at least 25 shots to tie or take the lead in the final minute of the fourth quarter overtime over the last 10 seasons. So nine for 73, 12%. Wow. This year it's uh, one for eight with the one being the uh, three to take the lead uh, in Brooklyn. Yeah. So the the second part of the question is over the last 10 years, there are seven players who have taken at least 100 shots to tie or take the lead in the final minute of the fourth quarter overtime. Mm -hmm. Uh, See if you can name those seven guys. Good grief. All seven of them? Sure. Ugh. Should be fairly easy. And you said over 100? 100, yeah. Okay, over the last well, 10 years. You got LeBron. LeBron James. Correct. He's third with 133. You got Russell. Second with 166. Okay. Kevin Durant. Yeah. Durant first, 172. Uh, James Harden. No. 
He's he's right below. You think he's I think he's at like ninety eight or oh, wow. ninety seven or ninety eight. Huh. Uh, Stephen Curry. Nope. No Steph. He's at uh, eighty eight. Harden uh, was ninety six. And, and how, what, what's the what's the span of years? Ten years. Ten years. Okay. Uh, what Carmelo, about Carmelo Anthony. Correct. One hundred fourteen. He's fourth. Whew. What about D Wade? Dwayne Wade, no, he's nine. Mm-hmm. He's has ninety nine. He so he's oh, eighth, wow. on the, eighth on the list at ninety nine. Okay. Uh, Damian Lillard. Damian Lillard, yes, fifth with one hundred eight. Two more. One guy's retired. One guy is not. One guy's retired. Kobe Bryant. Kobe Bryant, correct. One hundred. Okay, yeah, exactly. ten years, and one guy's not. Um, da, 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 this guy da. basically takes every clutch shot for his team. He play. He. he Basically, is the only guy shooting for his team in the last minute of the fourth quarter of overtime. We're drawing a blank. Uh, Kimball Walker. Kimball Walker, correct. Yeah. All right. Of those seven guys, who do you think has shot the best on those shots? Whew. Damian Lillard. Second best, 38%. Ah. Uh, let's see. Who did we say? I'm going to go ahead and say. It was Durant, Westbrook, LeBron, Carmelo, Damian Lillard, Kimball Walker, Kobe Bryant. Lillard, we know, is second best, 38%. I'll go ahead and say um, – I'll say Durant. No, 30%. Oh. This guy has shot 41% on those shots to tire take the lead. Please don't tell me it's Westbrook. Nope. <laughs> okay, good. 24, 24%. <laughs> I, I was thinking that MVP year, like, he was just – he was unbelievable in his MVP year doing yeah. that stuff. So, um <laughs> 20, yeah, 24%, which is... <laughs> please don't tell me it's Please don't tell me it's Westbrook. Well, uh, the, league, the league average, by the way, on these is 32%, so it's not great. But this right. guy has shot 41% on on uh, his... I'd love for it to be Carmelo. It's not. I know, but I would love he's for a, it. He's at 30%. That's an, incredible per- that's an incredible percentage in those situations. Uh, okay, so it's Kobe, right? Nope. 34%. Damn. Who are we missing? LeBron? LeBron James, yeah. 41%. That's incredible. Yeah, including 32% on threes, which is which is also below uh, above average. Right. So it's uh it's a little fascinating list. The best of the guys who have taken at least 25, I think was Al Horford mm-hmm. at the highest percentage. Out guys who have taken <laughs> it's a fascinating list. Guys who have taken at least 25 shots uh to tire take the lead in the last 10 years in the final fourth Final minute of fourth quarter overtime. Al Horford, 24 for 41. Almost all wow. of those are two-point shots. And the only other guy who's shot in 50% on those is Marcus Thornton, 14 <laughs> for 28, including wow. nine, for, nine for 16 on threes. And then you Jeez. get uh, Anthony Davis at 49% would be third. So it's kind of a fascinating list. But I'm, I'm oh, surprised Marcus that Marcus Thornton has gotten 28 attempts in those situations. <laughs> He probably played only like 28 possessions on those. Yeah, but he was the, you know, he's the. <laughs> he's like, give me the ball, man. I'll, I'll take the <laughs> shot. I'll take the shot. Awesome stuff. Shoot, thank you for the Schumann stand. As always, uh, a, a brain twister, if there ever was one. Eric, we appreciate you, man. Great information, great insight on the Thunder, man. We go to you uh, on the Oklahoma website at all times to uh, keep up with that team, man. It's going to be interesting to see how things play out the remainder of this season. So we'll be paying attention as always, man. Appreciate your work. Thanks. Thanks for having me, guys. Thank you. Thank you all. No doubt. Eric Horn of the Oklahoma joining us there on the Hank Time Podcast. People, we will have a slight hiccup in the schedule. Due to Martin Luther King Jr. Day on Monday, we will come to you on 
Tuesday, the day after, a bunch of great games on the holiday around the league. So we want to make sure we get a chance to talk those games, power rankings, and everything else. Kia Race of the MVP ladder will go up on Friday on NBA.com. Make sure you check it out. I have a – on good, th- good authority, I have a, a, a little birdie telling me that James Harden and potentially one Giannis Antetokounmpo might be at the top of that list. Shu, before we get off into another wild and crazy weekend around the NBA, there's a really cool project they're doing on NBA TV, and we talked about it a little bit last night, Derek Fisher and I with Ro Parrish, about the perfect player and, and what LeBron go into. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> what goes into the makeup of the perfect player in today's NBA? Debut segment was on Wednesday night on NBA TV again, and each week over the next two months, NBA TV will try and build that perfect player with eight different intangibles. Best handle, most athletic, best jump shot, highest basketball IQ, best defender, best vision, best body and size, and best intangible. Each category has three candidates, which were selected by a a survey of GMs and coaches around the league. You know a little something about that, having to do the GM survey every year. This week, it's best handles, and three candidates might surprise some people. Jamal Crawford, James Harden, and Kyrie Irving. You can cast your vote on NBA TV's Twitter account until noon Eastern on Friday. So, Shu, which of these guys do you think has the best handle? I would go with Kyrie Irving. I think his handle can get him places that the – like, of the three, his handle is best at sort of getting him to the basket. If that makes any sense, or getting him the space maybe that he wants, wherever. Right. Whereas the other guys, I think they're they're more setting up jump shots, and that's great. I mean, and, and Harden gets. I mean, I should you know I shouldn't say that quite like that because Harden gets to the basket quite a bit. But I think Irving's will you know sort of set himself up to get to the to the hoop a little bit more than those other two guys. Jamal Crawford, it's tough right now because he's older and. He is very much a just a jump shooter at this point in his career. So he is the uh, godfather of, of having like one of the nastiest handles of of his era, though. Absolutely. I mean, he does of all time. He's just yeah, he's done stuff that nobody else has ever done. Right. Like, but I'll just say Kyrie, just because I feel like it gets him to the hoop and can get him into spaces and and draw the attention. You know, draw get you know draw that second defender more often than mm. maybe the other two guys. I, I love the the concept of this. It's interesting. The one thing they didn't have on the list uh, of eight intangibles that I thought was kind of interesting and nobody asked my opinion. So I guess this is me just editorializing, but I was hoping they would have like the most clutch player or the most clutch category. I just told you who that was. I know, but I'm saying (laughs) that would have, to me, that is a way of separating some other guys out of the out of this mix because there are guys who are going to have really high marks in some of these categories. But if I can't trust you with a game on the line, what you know, what good is all this other fancy stuff? Is that shaded Paul George now? No, it's just a, just <laughs> a general comment. I, I love Paul George. You know, I'm not I'm not knocking PG. I think he's fantastic. Nine for seventy three. I know every look. You can't have it all, shoe. <laughs> can't have everything. But I, I agree. I think Kyrie's handle gets him and his team out of more tight spots than anybody, which is not easy to do in this league when you've got the athletes that you have capable of trying to 
compromise you with the ball in your hands. I think Kyrie's able to take advantage of everybody. Guys his size, smaller, bigger, whatever, more athletic, what have you. You know, at his size, with his handle, to me it makes Kyrie a lethal, you know, player off the dribble, which is almost a lost art for a lot of guys. You know, you don't you don't have that much time to to spend handling the way that Kyrie does normally. He's he's a he's a showtime player, no no doubt, when it's talking about, you know, handling the ball and, and playing off the dribble in this league. So for perfect player purposes, I think there's no doubt Kyrie wins in the best handle department. That's the first of the eight categories. There will be one each week for the next two months. NBA TV building the perfect player. And we'll talk about it each and every week here on the Hangtime Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to Hangtime on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts for new episodes all season long. Every week, twice a week, we will bring it to you here. Don't forget to leave a review, and we appreciate you. We will see you after the holiday next time on the Hangtime Podcast.